So this evening, uh, uh, I'd like to speak on the subject of compassion. And again, um, I'd really invite you to practice keeping a good portion of your attention in the body as you listen to this talk. Somehow feels appropriate because in the work of relating or the practice of relating, it's easy to lose contact with ourselves, isn't it? With our own embodied sense. So just an invitation as you listen to this talk to stay in contact with that. And as we've described uh, a few times this week, compassion is uh, one of the Brahma Viharas, one of these four states of mind that the Buddha recommended as dwellings for our hearts. I love Sharon Salzberg's. I mean, John said the term was untranslatable, and I, I quite like Sharon Salzberg's colloquial version of Brahma Viharas as our best homes. You know, these qualities of metta, of compassion, of appreciative joy, and of equanimity. And as we've been describing, you know, metta really is the sort of foundation which, when it, this sort of friendliness, when this friendliness contacts that which is joyful or happy or uplifting or beautiful, sort of morphs naturally in response into this quality of mudita that John spoke a little about last night, this sense of appreciative joy. And when this metta, when this friendliness encounters suffering, if the heart is free, free enough, it morphs into the response of compassion. So really getting this sense that compassion is the natural response when the heart touches suffering, when metta touches suffering. And in Pali, in the Pali Canon, there are two words that are often used to translate or that are translated as compassion. And one of them is the word anukampa, which really refers to the sense of empathy, the sort of affective response to suffering. I was talking with John uh, just now about the origins of this, and he was 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 saying how uh, it's related to the Sanskrit anukrusha. Is that right? Krusha, uh, which which is to cry out at the crying of another, to cry out at the suffering of another. So it's really that sense of the heart being affected by the suffering we encounter. And the other word that is perhaps more familiar uh, is the word karuna, which comes from the Sanskrit to make or to do, or to turn outwards. 
And I think that these two words point to two really integral ingredients, if you like, the two basic dynamics within compassion. One of which is a listening, a receptive openness, a willingness to be affected, to be touched by the suffering we encounter within ourselves and within others. And the other is this turning outwards, this natural response to alleviate, to meet, to somehow support, (laughs) to ease suffering. That sort of responsiveness that leads Thich Nhat Hanh to say compassion is a verb. And if I just invite you to remember a time when you experienced a compassionate response to suffering, either as the recipient of a compassionate response from another, or as the person who responded to somebody else's suffering, if you just remember a time where you experienced that, And just notice, if you can, how that felt. We sometimes can almost have a sort of unconscious fear or sense that compassion has a sort of heaviness to it, has a certain sort of, because it's about suffering, it's got a sort of weightiness to it. But actually, when we experience compassion or when we offer compassion don't we often find it has a certain lightness to it it's got a sort of energizing quality to it there's there's often a sense of connection in that moment of compassion that is that is uplifting and one can see why the buddha described it as a sort of sublime state or a sublime abiding it's it's not a sort of heavy premeditated would you agree that you know in res- in a compassionate it's not like this i have this idea how this is going to be fixed you know that's not the flavor of compassion is it compassion has got a sort of almost a spontaneity to it uh, and also it, this well the spontaneity seems really to be an attuned response to the particularities of the situation it's sort of a response that makes sense in that situation. Would, would, would you agree with that? You know, that there's a feeling of, oh, yes, somehow that made sense <laughs> as, a, as a response to this. You, you sort of feel met when you receive a compassionate gesture from somebody because it's somehow quite attuned and appropriate in the context. And, you know, if we take these two Pali words, this, this sort of... Em- empathic receiving or listening and the sort of turning outwards and responding we can see how connected they are how it's really the degree the skillfulness of the response the appropriateness of the response somehow reflects the degree to which there has been a real listening to the situation a real 
mindfulness of the situation, a real presence within the situation. Does that make sense? You know, that actually an attuned response, it, it almost feels like there's a sort of, the heart has a, a, a natural compassionate intelligence that arises when we allow ourselves to be touched in an undefended way. You know, I think of that story we heard last night, that moving story about little Gustav. You know, every moment is a life. It's like somehow this sort of intelligence came through the sort of undefended nature of his presence with his mum's suffering. You know. And in, in Zen, there's, there's a story which I love. It sort of moves me just to think of it, where where um, the student asks the master, what's the goal of a lifetime of practice? You know, it's a, it's a sort of big question for us when we've spent a week doing this, isn't it? You know, <laughs> it's like, <laughs> what's the goal of a lifetime of doing practice? And the answer comes back, an appropriate response. And I love that. You know, the sense that this practice is about cultivating our capacity for more and more appropriateness of response to the situations that we encounter, that we find ourselves in, you know. All those many, many meetings we have that invite or ask for an attuned responsiveness. feels like, you know, it's a responsiveness, an appropriate responsiveness to suffering internally as well as externally. And it also feels like, you know, what, what a useful aspiration for a therapist or a mindfulness teacher. I mean, maybe it is your aspiration as a therapist or a mindfulness teacher, you know. It's what we really, we really sort of want to Im- manifest in our classes, isn't it? An appropriateness of response to the situations that are presenting themselves. And of course, because this compassionate response is attuned to the particularities of very specific situations, it can take many, many different forms. This This is from a doctor. I stand by the bed where a young woman lies her face post-operative, her mouth twisted in palsy. A tiny twig of the facial nerve, the one to the muscles of her mouth, has been severed. She will be thus from now on. As a surgeon, I had followed with religious fervour the curve of her flesh. I promise you that. Nevertheless, to remove the tumour in her cheek, I had to cut the little nerve. Her young husband is in the room. He stands on the opposite side of the bed and together they seem to dwell in the evening lamplight, isolated from me, private. Who are they? I ask myself. He and this wry mouth, 
who gaze and touch each other so generously. The woman speaks. Will my mouth always be like this? She asks. Yes, I say. It's because the nerve had to be cut. She nods, is silent. But the young man smiles. I like it, he says. It's kind of cute. All at once, I know who he is. I understand and I lower my gaze. One is not bold in, the, in an encounter with a god. Unmindful of my presence, he bends to kiss her crooked mouth. And I'm so close, I can see how he twists his own lips to accommodate hers, to show her that their kiss still works. I remember that the gods appeared in ancient Greece as mortals, and I hold my breath and let the wonder in. Beautiful story. Mm. Appropriateness of response. This sort of appropriate response that can manifest in such sort of exquisite tenderness. And if you go to China, you sometimes find images of Kuan Yin, the Bodhisattva of compassion. And we have some truly beautiful images here, don't we, at IMS, including the one at the back of this hall. And in, uh, in China, you sometimes see images of Kuan Yin with many different hands and arms, each one of which is holding some different object. So, it might be a, a willow branch with which to bless or a, a vase of ointment to soothe suffering or it might be an axe or a sword or a bow and arrow and i think that that points in such a in such a uh, a graphic way to the very many ways in which compassion can manifest you know the very many forms that appropriate response can take, which include sometimes a really strong and fierce sense of no, you know, boundary drawing that says, I will not let this happen, you know. And compassion really, if it's to be truly responsive, requires this sort of versatility, this sort of responsiveness to the conditions of the moment that comes out of a depth of listening, a depth of connection and a sensitivity to the particular conditions that are here right now. And again, I think of you know, teaching a mindfulness class and the process of inquiry and how you can go from one moment where actually just the most exquisite tenderness is required of you to the next where actually you're having to be quite strong with somebody, you know? And that, that really to sort of let compassion have that sort of free-flowing quality to it, I think is a real practice, is a real practice. And, and so, you know, the question 
therefore comes, well, if, if we're saying this responsiveness arises in proportion to the degree to which we're truly present and deeply listening to the situation, well, what supports this sort of deep listening that really attunes the heart-mind to the particularities of, of the moment? What really supports this bearing witness that is a key, the key determinant of the appropriate, appropriateness of our response? And, you know, I asked that question in a room of psychotherapists, you know. Um, but, you know, just if we reflect, well, what do we know in our experience supports deep listening? Well, certainly a sort of groundedness in the body, you know, an embodied presence. As an availability, a, a sort of heart availability, a willingness to be touched by the experience of another. The willingness and ability also to let go of our agendas and reactions and urges to fix, you know, distracting thoughts that may come up. And of course, if you think of it in those terms, would that be right? Would you say that's a fair sort of sense of some, some of the basics of skillful listening? Embodied presence, heartful connection or heart willingness to feel the moment, not just think it. And that capacity to sort of put aside our agendas and really to be present for another. You know, this is what we've been practicing over the last few days as well, isn't it? You know, we, we, we can see that in a certain way, the practice that we're doing here together is about learning to listen. Learning to listen compassionately and responsively rather than reactively to the experience of this moment. <laughs> you know, Kuan Yin means the one who listens to the cries of the world. And in a certain way, as we sit and practice, we hear the cries of the world in our own hearts, don't we? You know, and we're invited to practice listening and responding rather than reacting to what arises. And, you know, just the experience of being on retreat just highlights how indispensable compassion is to our practice. I love there's a quotation by a Tibetan sage from the 18th century called Shabkar who says, meditation without compassion is simply to inflict hardship on yourself. You know? <laughs> you know? And we know that to be true, don't we? We really know that to be true. And, you know, if we think about the truth of that, we can see how well living without compassion is simply to inflict hardship on ourselves and indeed on those around us. And, you know, for what we're saying then is that compassion is this embodied, heartfelt, friendly knowing, a sort of spacious receptivity that's available to be touched. Can you feel that right now? You know, if you just tune into that sense of receptivity that just is receiving this moment's experience, grounded in the body, receiving this moment's experience. Allowing 
the heart to be affected by this moment's experience. And I love the description that, that you sometimes hear of compassion as resonance. You know, the, the, the willingness and capacity to resonate with what one encounters in this moment. Can you feel that? Do you feel that? Sort of like the, the heart space that's available and spacious and empty enough to meet life in this moment. And it is sort of like a bell, isn't it, in that way? You know, we think of sort of the, the spacious openness of the bell that, you know, you just, just touch it. You know, when the heart, we've all felt this, haven't we? You know, when we're listening to somebody and we're really present for them. It's like there's this, this openness that is touched by what they say. We let ourselves be touched. And, and there's this sense how the heart and, and the body, you know how the body resonates with the presence of another when we're really present? You know? It's almost like the, a resonating chamber. You know, those who, who listen as their profession will know how the body tells us so much, doesn't it, when we're really listening. But we can also see how easy it is for the resonant heart to be obstructed, can't we? I haven't tried this out yet. I probably should have done. Uh, but, you know, if we think about, well, what, what, uh, you know, what it's like when the heart gets full, you know, you know. And, and there we are, you know, meant to be listening, and what we get is, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and <laughs> how easy it is. <laughs> how easy it is for the heart to feel like that on occasion. Isn't that right? You know? And... Um, I came across this from, from Ajahn Suchito, who's, a, who's a, a wise monk in the forest tradition in, uh, in the UK. And he says, the way the Buddha describes these states of metta and compassion and joy is by what they're not. He says, they're not cramped. They're free from hatred and ill will. They are beyond limitation and measure to others as to oneself. This is typical of the way the Buddha speaks, a way that emphasizes letting go. It's by the removal of certain blocks that healthy states happen. It's not pump out that meta now, or you should have more compassion, otherwise you're not good enough. But more that if you understand these blocks, and practice releasing them, then you can be free of their cramped boundaries. A greater potential can come forth. Or we could say, you know, the heart then becomes free to resonate if this comes out. This will be interesting, won't it? <laughs> yeah, there we go. <laughs> Thank goodness. There's, <laughs> there's hope for us all. <laughs> you know. <laughs> you know, and, and so it really, you know, in line with what 
Ajahn Suchita is saying there and what the Buddha is saying, it's really helpful to reflect, well, what obstructs the heart? What obstructs the resonant heart? You know, in those moments that we've all had when we've been trying to listen to somebody and we just can't somehow show up, you know, we can't, we're not able to be touched by what they're saying. You know? What is it that gets in the way? Well, I mean, we can see that, that one of the things that gets in the way is, is our habits of busyness and distractedness. Don't we notice that? You know, you know how in Chinese, apparently, the word for busyness has the character's heart killing. You know, which is pretty sobering, isn't it? In our busy age. And uh, I think it's a particular challenge for uh, mindfulness teachers at a time when there's so much popularity of mindfulness. You know, it seems like we've got... Mindfulness, it's very easy to, to lapse into what you could call mindfulness-based stress production, you know? Because, you know, mindfulness teachers are much in demand, you know? And it's easy to, to sign up to too many projects or too many classes, isn't it? And those salutary words from Thomas Merton about, you know, to give yourself to too many good causes is one of the ways of succumbing to the violence of our times, you know? And sort of highlighting just how our capacity for mindful presence, our capacity for a degree of calm, our capacity for a degree of resonance with the experience of another is a precious, is a precious capacity that we need to protect, you know? We really need to protect midst the franticity of the world, you know. And, and, you know, it highlights just how important it is for us to have a daily practice, whatever form that takes, you know, to have a daily practice that is about protecting our heart's capacity to, re- to resonate with and therefore respond skillfully to what we meet in our classes or in our therapy room or in our home or in our community or our workplace. And we can see, can't we, also how something else that obstructs the resonance of the heart are our agendas, you know, our trying to get it right. So, so easy, isn't it, as a mindfulness teacher to have a sense of how I should be doing this or how I really want to be doing this. And somehow that gets in the way, doesn't it? You know, somehow we get in the way of our capacity really to trust the deep listening, the deep embodied listening that is actually the source of skillful response. You know, and of course the desire or the urge to fix, you know, the, the discomfort that we can feel in a therapy room, in a home, in a mindfulness class, the discomfort we can feel with being with the suffering of another, you know, can feel like I can't quite bear this, you know, and so the heart gets reactive rather than resonant. And we really see how, you know, these days on retreat are about building our capacity to be with the difficult 
as well as the delightful. You know? And how we're building a capacity that, of course, has implications in the rest of our lives. <laughs> you know? And what a... Um, profound thing it is to come really to trust the power of listening and to trust that sometimes just listening and bearing witness and being present is enough and is the appropriate response and we can see just how easily in terms of you know obstructions just how easily our heart creates self-other distinctions and divisions. You know, the, we can see this on retreat, can't we? How, you know, you go through the day and you see the heart contracting and expanding. <laughs> you know, the times when the sense of self feels strong and the sense of other feels strong and the times when that dissolves and there's a sense of ease and openness and connection. We just see how this sort of natural rhythm of contraction and expansion. Uh, and we can, we can also see, you know, just how that locks into place, the contracted heart locks into place, say, in our workplace, you know. Just how easy it is to sort of collude with the perception of self and other or in-group and out-group, you know, the management you know, the staff or the, the in-groups and out-groups in our society. You know, even amongst our family and friends, you know, the ways in which we can, this sort of deep tendency to create self-other, you know, self and other separateness can obstruct, can cause misunderstandings can cause conflict, can cause alienation and suffering. And, you know, as we've been describing over the last few days, and you've been describing in the groups as well, we can trace this right back to the reactivity to pleasant and to unpleasant Vedana. And the clinging and the selfing that co-arise with that. You know, one can sense in the, the sort of... S- relative slowness and clarity of a retreat, just how the reactivity and the clinging and the identification and the selfing and the othering so easily co-arise. You know, they, they arise together. And Pema Chodron, in her beautiful, very helpful book, When Things Fall Apart, which some of you may know and, and love, she compares our tender heart to a sea anemone. I'm never quite sure I say that word quite right, but anemone, is that right? Yeah, a sea anemone, you know, which these anemones have a soft center that opens and then closes in self-protection when touched. And we can see how the heart does this, doesn't it? It has this tenderness, tenderness, but yet in contact with unpleasantness or difficulty or the fear of pain, we see how it so easily has the reflex of closing. You know, the fear that the pain is going to be overwhelming 
or somehow annihilating. We can see it's a, you know, a survival instinct that the heart seeks to protect itself. But we can also see how that self-protective instinct closes us off from others, you know, from beauty. You know, we know those feelings of the contracted heart that can't register the beautiful day, you know, or can't register and receive the kindness of others. You know, can't allow itself to be nourished by life. And, and there's such a deep irony in this, isn't there? Because we can see that the heart closes, this sort of anemone heart closes in self-protection. And yet the greater pain comes from the disconnection. You know, if we think about our most difficult states, aren't they ones of feeling isolated, where we feel really separate, we feel really alone? The, the sort of boundaries of self and other feel at their strongest when we're, you know, feeling ashamed or feeling isolated in our grief or in our anger or our despair or our anxiety. You know, we can see just, just how unbearable in some ways the isolation in intense suffering can feel and I'm always moved by that story of the young mother who who went to the Buddha after her child had died and she sort of felt she was going mad with grief you know just the heart heartbreaking grief of having lost her child and the Buddha said to her, you know, your heart will only ease if you go to every house in the village and find one uh, and, and take a mustard seed from each one where no one has died. And of course she went round the houses of the village and found that there was no house where no one had died. And somehow this was a real moment of awakening for her, that she was not isolated. She was sharing the common pain of humanity, of the human condition. And uh, I love Ajahn Suchito, who I've mentioned already, has a practice where he just reflects, oh, like me, you know? You see someone laughing, having great fun. You think, oh, like me. You see someone grieving. Oh, like me. You see someone who you really don't like, <laughs> you know. Oh, like me, you know. You hear the sound of an ambulance. You think, oh, like me. Or on the news. So easily to so easy to protect ourselves from the suffering on the news, isn't it? And actually just sometimes just to drop in that reflection, oh like me. 
And of course, as we said this afternoon, this is not about homogenizing difference. This is not about denying our distinctiveness or our individuality. But it is to recognize that although our stories may be different, the quality of the experience of grief or anger or hatred or love or joy or anxiety or shame is the same. This is part of our universal humanity, our common humanity, as Krista Neff calls it in her work on self-compassion. You know, and really helpful practice to, to drop in, the like me practice, particularly with the people who we're busy othering. You know? Even the perpetrators of violence and harm, you know, to reflect that, you know, I too, like me, I too have a capacity for ignorance and confusion and acting out of impulses and reactivity. You know, that sobering quotation from James Baldwin, an enemy is someone whose story you've not heard. And all the subtle ways in which we create you know, enemy may feel a bit strong, but we create otherness because of not having really heard someone's story. You know. And of course, this is not about idealism. Our hearts do contract in self-protection in the face of the pain and suffering we encounter in ourselves, in the lives of those we love, those we know, in the news. You know, to watch the news is overwhelming, you know, isn't it? Feels like the, the news of the last year. It's been almost unbearable to watch, you know, so intense. And we can, we can see also how, and the Buddha really documented, you know, how the heart slides into shadow states that are not quite compassion. You know, he talked about them as near enemies. Christina used that term earlier in the week, you know, the near enemies of, of pity, where it's, you know, I'm really sorry for you. You know, I'm glad that's not happening to me. I'm really sorry for you. You know, it's, it's a way of protecting the heart, actually, isn't it? Of not really being able to feel another's pain, not really being able to resonate with the situation, you know, or despair or hopelessness where the heart can so easily slide if we're just overwhelmed, you know. Or we, we, flip, we can easily flip into the far enemies of compassion, anger, blame, you know, self-righteousness, judgment. And, and so, you know, we see just the, the power and the importance of intention around this. You know, because we could see how these near and far enemies can so easily become the habits of our minds and hearts in a way that keep them sort of chronically closed off from both the sorrows and the joys of life. You know, because when we close to one, we close to the other. You know, we can be chronically closed off if we're not guided by our intentions. You know, this theme that we've spoken about so much this week. The, the, the importance of 
the meta practice of really cultivating the intention towards goodwill. The inten- whatever we're feeling, practicing the intention of goodwill. You know, the intention of mindfulness, to be present. Seeing how you know, what we're doing together is really practicing naturalizing these wholesome, protective intentions that support the human heart and indeed support human society. And, and I love a quotation from Christina's wonderful book on compassion. Um, and she says, Compassion does not exempt you from fear, but it is fierce in its commitment not to be governed by fear because it's consenting to fear that what set is what separates and divides us. You know, living by our intentions and, and you may well know that passage from Viktor Frankl's book, Man's Search to Meaning, about his time in Auschwitz, you know, where he described this capacity to live by our, our intentions and to be and to live above all by the intention of compassion as the last of the human freedoms you know he said everything can be taken from a human being except one thing the last of the human freedoms the freedom to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances to choose one's way And so we can see how you know, mindfulness, insight, and compassion need and support each other. You know, this sense that it's, it's the equanimity in the Brahma Viharas that gives the boundless quality to metta, compassion, and joy. An equanimity that's born of our mindfulness practice, which is this willingness and capacity to stand equally near all events and experiences, as, as Christina described it. Really feeling the, the power of that, the willingness and the capacity to stand equally near all Vedana tones, if you like, especially perhaps the unpleasant from which we can so easily rela- you know, react and the anemone heart can close. You know, the willingness to tolerate, allow, breathe with, <laughs> practice peacefully coexisting with a wider and wider range of experiences. This is, this is the path of equanimity, the cultivation of equanimity, which the Buddha clearly identified as the path to peace and freedom. And we can see how our capacity for equanimity, that ability to stand in the middle of experience, that's what one of the words for equanimity means, to stand in the middle of experience with a sense of balance. You know, how the practices we've been talking about of seeing impermanence, seeing unsatisfactoriness, seeing the selflessness of all events and experiences all that we take as me and my, we can see how that supports this capacity to stand equally near. And and so many of you have spoken about this in in the groups, you know, just the recognition of impermanence, that this too will pass. 
how that enables an ability to allow and breathe with and stand near a difficult experience. And we can see that the more we see how experience moment by moment is shaped and conditioned and fabricated by mind, you know, and that is in a sense without any intrinsic solidity in that way, you know. The more clearly we see this, the more it quietens and undoes the habits of reactivity, aversion and avoidance that close our hearts. The more it enables a a, a non-reactive mindful presence and a compassionate responsiveness to a wider and wider range of situations that we encounter in our lives meeting them without closing down, without reacting with, in ways that are about sort of defensive separation. And so we see really how, how wisdom and compassion, the cultivation of mindfulness, equanimity and compassion really are mutually dependent. The Dalai Lama puts it like this, without the unity of compassion and emptiness, we can fall into despair. Real compassion must arise from our insight into the emptiness of inherent self. This is where the vast meets the profound. Otherwise, though our compassion may be strong, it's likely to fall into the quality of hopelessness or even despair. Can we feel this in this moment, you know, this sense of of how actually being able to befriend this moment, stand near to it, enables us to respond to it. How the reflection on its impermanence, how the sense of all the phenomena arising in mind and heart and in experience is not me, not mine, actually opens the field. When I take this as me, you know, I inevitably create a sense of other as well, and the field closes down. Yeah, the sense of resonance closes down. And, and Milarepa, one of the Tibetan sages, said, long accustomed to cultivating compassion, I can no longer think in terms of self and other. And really to to practice, we can see that he describes it as a fruit. But we can actually make it a practice, you know. Where we, we practice not thinking in terms of your suffering and my compassion. You know, we can see Ramdas says, you know, to the extent to which we, we are identified with being the helper we turn the other person into the helpee, you know. And actually what this points to, this this teaching of emptiness or this teaching of profound selflessness is, is that suffering and compassionate response have no owner. You know, although the self other distinction has validity and use at some levels, it becomes a prison 
when we believe it to be the ultimate nature of things. You know, when in any meeting, in any listening, the less there is identification with giver and receiver, sufferer, responder, don't we find that the clearer the listening and the seeing and the more attuned we are to the immediacy of what's actually happening, stepping out of our roles into the vulnerable aliveness of being really present. And and we see in this, you know, the secret of Kuan Yin's infinite capacity for compassion. Kuan Yin, the Bodhisattva of compassion. The name means, you know, the one who listens to the cries of the world, as I've said. And that sense of being able to, in the beautiful statues we have here, you know, the eyes are open. There's a listening, a deep listening. There's a deep sort of perfection of presence with the suffering of the world. But there's also a perfection in equanimity. There's a perfection in not the slightest reactivity or clinging or selfing or othering or world building in reaction to the suffering that she witnesses. And that that is the secret of the capacity for compassionate response, limitless response. Pema Chodron, I think, points in this direction about this integration of wisdom and compassion when she says, at the relative level, our noble heart is felt as kinship with all beings. At the absolute level, we experience it as groundlessness or open space. Now, this is not about trying to conform to some idea of being a compassionate person. We know what that's like, don't we? You know, I'm a compassionate person going around looking for the next person to try it out on, you know? <laughs> but as, as I think John or Christina was saying the other day, you know, what, what this points towards is a sense of possibility, an imaginative possibility for how we can live and orient our ordinary lives you know, a sense of aspiration within our lives towards this quality of mindful presence, deep resonant listening, and a trusting of the compassionate responsiveness that arises when we really meet life with that sort of openness. And, you know, we don't need special lives to cultivate compassion. We, We look at, you know, the the great compassionate beings that we know of, you know, His Holiness the Dalai Lama or Desmond Tutu or Aung San Suu Kyi or, you know, Mahatma Gandhi. And we think, wow, you know, they had special suffering somehow that enabled them to manifest this. And I've always found helpful Ajahn Sumedho's reminder where he says, you know, the ordinary circumstances of of our lives are enough to get enlightened with. You know, we don't, we don't need any special suffering, you know. You know? So it's, it's your particular life, my particular life, 
in all its particularity that is the classroom or the curriculum that is able to teach us how to embody these qualities more moment by moment. And of course, the place where we learn and cultivate compassion and equanimity is right now. You know, it's how we attend to and respond to this unique moment, this unique moment that life is presenting. This is, this is where the practice of this is, you know. Can this, this tender anemone heart be awake and allowing and interested and responsive to this? To this? To this? You know, it's in this moment that the heart can meet. We have the opportunity to meet what's arising with, appropriate, with the appropriateness responsiveness that is the goal of a lifetime of practice. A responsiveness to joys, to sorrows, whether they arise internally or externally. You know, I, I, I was really moved by John's talk last night and that sense of the preciousness of this moment and the, the feeling of how when we really can come into it and awake up to it, we can feel the soft, tender heart, you know, begin to meet it. You know, even if it's a moment of difficulty, just to recognize it, to step out of the resisting it and rec- recognize it and practice allowing it or breathing with it or finding our feet in the midst of it. We can s- feel how something in the heart softens. You know. And of course, as, as we, we do this, as we sit and walk and practice together and cultivate our responsiveness to this moment, we can know and we can trust that our practice isn't just for our benefits alone. How could it be? You know, This heart that we're cultivating, these qualities that we're cultivating day by day, hour by hour, moment by moment here on retreat are qualities that we bring to our relationships with those we love, with those we know, with those we work with, with those we meet the patience, the willingness to begin again and again, the courage to meet what's arising, the sense of humor to really practice allowing, the tenderness that is willing to hold our bodies and our hearts with compassion. This is our gift to the world. And it can be so inspiring really to turn that from just something that we know to being something that motivates our practice. You know, I I wonder 
you know, many of us do this at the end of our practice and probably we each have our own reason for doing that. But what a beautiful reason it is to have that sense of, okay, may any benefit from this practice, this sitting, this walking, this day, may any benefit from this somehow be an offering to those I love, those I know, those I don't know. All beings, especially those who are suffering intensely in this moment, wherever they are, I dedicate any benefit from this practice to them. Can really help to have a sense of you know, connecting our practice with the world, making our lives, making our practice an offering in that way. You know, and of course, we do it whether we've had a sitting which was blissful and peaceful or one where we just couldn't even find a breath, you know. Just that, that basic orienting of intention towards offering the merits of what we do and what we practice for the sake of the world and for sake of especially those who are suffering intensely in this moment. And so we see really how these, these four qualities, these Brahma Viharas of, of metta and compassion and joy and equanimity really are the, you could call them the crown jewels of the Dharma. You know? Whether we regard ourselves as beginners or we've been doing this for many years. We can see how they're mutually supportive, supporting and balancing. How our capacity to open deeply to joy and nourishment and uplift, you know, helps build our capacity for being with the difficult, with the painful, with the tragic. And as we cultivate these Brahma Viharas, they work together to undo the habits of fear, of reactivity of separating, of disconnection. The ways we fragment our hearts and our relationships. And together, these qualities really can support us in the cultivation of a heart. The gradual cultivation of a heart that has a capacity to be present and awake and tender and responsive and free. And I'd like to end with a poem that some of you may know, uh, which says a lot, you know, it says so beautifully um, so much about what compassion is. It's called kindness, um, but it's really about compassion. It's by Naomi Shihab Nye. Before you know what kindness really is, you must lose things. Feel the future dissolve in a moment like salt in a weakened broth. What you held in your hand, what you counted and carefully saved, All this must go, so you know how desolate the landscape can be between the regions of kindness. 
how you can ride and ride, thinking the bus will never stop. The passengers eating maize and chicken will stare out of the window forever. Before you learn the tender gravity of kindness, you must travel where the Indian in a white poncho lies dead by the side of the road. You must see how this could be you. How he too was someone who journeyed through the night with plans and the simple breath that kept him alive. Before you know kindness as the deepest thing inside, you must know sorrow as the other deepest thing. You must wake up with sorrow. You must speak to it till your voice catches the thread of all sorrows and you see the size of the cloth. Then it is only kindness that makes sense anymore. Only kindness that ties your shoes and sends you out into the day to mail letters and purchase bread. Only kindness that raises its head from the crowd of the world to say, it is I you have been looking for. And then goes with you everywhere, like a shadow or a friend. So let's sit for a few moments together. So thank you for your attention. Really appreciated. And we have some time for walking now. And then the final sit of the day. Do we have someone to ring the bell tonight for the final sit of the day? Yes. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. Okay. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.